Welcome to episode 68 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And we are going to cover Utah this week. I'm very excited about my true crime. Bethy has the paranormal and we have two very, very special guests. Me, Aiden, and Nolan is the newest guest. And <laughs> Nolan is the newest I guest. I do. This day. is Nolan. Oh, boy. Yes, we are trying this with the three-year-old. Nolan he was feeling is so excited for this first podcast. Yeah, he was feeling a little left out, so we thought we'd include him. On the podcast. I have the paranormal this week, so I have the beverage. And hi, hi, Nolan. Yeah, hi, Nolan. Okay, so. Podcast is going to go smoothly up. <laughs> Smoothly up. <laughs> Let's hope this goes smoothly at all with you crazy monsters. I'm so excited for this new drink. Well, Utah has the lowest alcohol consumption in the country. So I thought the perfect excuse for another mocktail and the state fruit. <laughs> the state fruit of Utah is the cherry. Oh, no kidding. When I think cherry, I think Shirley, Shirley Temple. Temple. <laughs> <laughs> so, boys, let's try our Shirley Temples. I have one, too. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, yeah, yeah. What do you think, boys? Good. So, I don't, I don't think I've ever, I don't think the boys have ever had any kind of soda before. So, <laughs> even though it's just, it's just Sprite, it's still a soda. Aiden's face is... The bubbles are interesting, aren't they? How does it taste? Is it is it yummy? It tastes like that grape juice. Kind of like grape juice, grape huh? Grape juice. Mm. This is so yummy and so tastes like the grape juice that I take. Oh, okay. Well, I don't think I've ever even got you grape juice before. Um, uh, okay, Mom. You start now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it is said that in the late 1930s, a bartender in Beverly Hills invented the cocktail. The bartender made the drink for the young actress, Shirley Temple, during her most famous time in her career, I guess. So it's fairly simple. We filled a glass with ice. We added an ounce of... No. Peanut butter. No, we did not peanut add butter. an ounce of peanut, peanut butter. butter. There's no peanut butter in there. I just poured the Sprite in there with a splash of grenadine, and I did garnish it with some maraschino cherries. Oh, nice. I didn't have those, but I did everything else. But she melted it. No, I didn't melt anything. <laughs> There's no peanut butter and there's no melting. It's a fairly easy mocktail. <laughs> so, Aiden, you said you wanted to share a joke. You want to share your joke? Have you heard about the horses who live next to each other? No, I haven't. Because they were neighbors. <laughs> Another good one, Aiden. They were neighbors. Oh, Nolan's joke. Sorry, guys. Who's there? Me, Nolan. You, Nolan. (laughs) That was a good joke. That's a good one, Nolan. Sorry, he's... It tastes strawberries. You taste strawberries? It's cherries. All right, boys. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. It's so good to see you guys. Thank you. Have fun on the podcast.
Thank you, Aiden. Thank you, Nolan. All right. Love you, guys. Hold on, on, Mom. Nolan, do you have something? Before you leave with Aiden, did you have something you wanted to say, little man? This is your first podcast. Did you want to say goodbye? Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't know if you guys caught any of that, but the state fruit is a cherry, and I chose a Shirley Temple mocktail, (laughs) and uh, you can add... Instead of Sprite, you could do a Coca-Cola and make it a Roy Rogers. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you could always you could always do a little splash of vodka in that Shirley Temple, make it more of an adult Shirley Temple. I don't know what the name okay. for that one would be, but there are some options for you all. All right. All right. Great. Fun drink. Ready for a true crime story, Mom. All right. Here we go. Well, the first time I heard about this crime was when I watched Dateline. You know, I love Dateline. You and your dateline. Yep, but I get the best information anyway, or the beginning of the information, you know what I mean? Like the introduction. Sure. So it was their January 28th episode, and actually my heart just broke. And for some reason, you know how cases really, some cases just touch you for some reason? Don't even know why, but (laughs) this case was that. For me, as a matter of fact, I, I was just this last... Saturday I went to mass and for some reason I was sitting there and I just started crying. I mean, I had tears running down my face because I had just finished doing this, uh, finishing up this research for this episode. And I just thought of this girl, this young lady, and I just started crying. It was... Oh, mom. <laughs> I know. It was the saddest thing. I was like, what in the world am I doing? But that's how this case really touched me. So Lauren, a 21-year-old student at the University of Utah, did all the right things when she felt and was threatened, but the ball was dropped, which resulted in an unnecessary and tragic outcome. Lauren McCluskey was an amazing, beautiful young woman. She was born in Berkeley, California on February 12, 1997. A year and a half later, her family moved to Pullman, Washington, where her parents, Matt and Jill, accepted jobs as professors at Washington State University. Lauren is described by her mother as a very bright, sensitive, and active child, climbing trees as early as two years old. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, golly. Uh, Actually, trees and walls. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> like high, you know, when you're walking and they have those high walls, you know. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I'm constantly pulling Nolan off of. But a yeah. two-year-old, oh, goodness. So that active athletic side just became more and more pronounced as Lauren grew older. When she was eight years old, she competed in Junior Olympics and set records in high jump, long jump, and the 400-meter run when she was eight. At nine years old, she qualified for nationals in the nine to 10 age group, and she continued to compete nationally in high jump hurdles and multi events. Jeez. I know. Earning USA track and field all American 19 times. Oh my gosh. She's nine? Uh, well, as she grew, as she grew older, she did oh, this. Oh, okay. I was like, okay. whoa, wow. <laughs> like a superhero. She set many records some of which still stand today. Hmm. So, I mean, she's she was just amazing when it came to this stuff. She was an absolute athlete, but that wasn't the only thing that identified Lauren. She loved animals, especially cats. She had two of her own, Fuzzy and Victory. 
She volunteered at the Whitman County Humane Society, helping to socialize cats so they would be more adoptable. And yes, I did say volunteered. You don't see too much of that these days. She also volunteered for the YMCA and Special Olympics. Lauren had been described as quiet, but more accurately, and I love this, she chose her words with care. Oh. Yeah. You also don't see that very often these days. No, you don't see it at all. (laughs) She had a terrific work ethic, which you can pick out in her volunteering as well as her grades and her dedication to her sport. Coaches and teammates stated that she actually inspired them. Oh. Never complaining, just jumping in there and working hard. No matter what the weather was, no matter what, she was out there working. After hearing this, you may think, man, did this girl have a life? I mean, between school and working out and volunteering. And the answer to that is, yes, she actually did. She loved being with friends. She loved dancing and singing. And she really liked karaoke. Oh, And she even dabbled in stand-up comedy. How fun. I mean, she just had, she was all around just living life. Just The whole package almost. I mean, after graduating from high school, Lauren attended the University of Utah, where she became a member of the women's track and field team. And she didn't slack off after she got to college. She remained dedicated to working out, became an inspiration to her new coaches and team members. She was a gifted writer even enrolling in electives on grammar and logic, just for the fun of it. Just for the fun of it. Oh, boy. (laughs) For her communication internship, Lauren interned at Cortland Place Retirement Community, where her grandparents lived. For her project, she designed a picture directory of the residents in the retirement community. Most places have that, right? Mm -hmm. But what made her project different was that she spent many hours interviewing the residents and writing down their stories. So in the directory, you not only find the resident's name and picture, but also a little side story about their life. Oh my gosh, I love that. Isn't that cool? I I just, yeah, I thought that was super cool too. Lauren's family attended church every Sunday, and Lauren did not slacken that area of her life either while she was at college. (laughs) She attended. She's one of those people where you sit back and you go, I suck as a human. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that that I suck. All right, go on. She she attended Capitol Church in Salt Lake City, and with a smile, she'd even invite her friends to come with her. And of course, she'd sing her heart out at church and encourage her friends to do likewise. So if you're standing next to her and you were just like, uh, she'd like nudge you and say, come on, sing. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, but you'll, yeah, and you'll see a picture of her. She was absolutely beautiful. Just just this natural, you know, a natural beauty. And, you know, sometimes when you look at that, look at people like that, you can see the beauty inside of them, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not just on their face or whatever. It's an inside beauty also. Well, they just have that, I don't know, that internal knowledge to just live life to the fullest. Like, this is your one life. Live it. Like, just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she didn't, you know, she lived it, but she didn't step on anyone's toes doing so. Sure. Yeah. So this is just a brief description of this beautiful, talented and giving woman, a woman whose life was ended all too soon by somebody that could have been stopped. And that's where I get angry. On September 2nd, 2018, 
Lauren met Melvin Rowland at a popular downtown bar where Rowland worked as a bouncer. He told her that he was in the military and had trained as a security officer. She must have liked him and felt safe with him because they began dating. Rowland started coming and staying with her at her residence hall, making friends with other students in the building. 24 days later, Lauren told her two friends that Roland didn't want her to hang out with them anymore. Red flag, anyone? Uh, yeah. The friends were very worried about Lauren. She had begun to look tired and had lost a lot of weight. On September 30th, two of Lauren's friends told staff at the dorm that they were fearful for Lauren and her safety. They reported the control Roland seemed to have over Lauren that he often stayed the night at the dorm, and that he often spoke about guns. All in all, the guy just creeped them out. This report stopped right there. I guess the staff was more concerned about housing policy violations than whether this guy could be a threat to Lauren, so they never reported this to campus police or to a campus behavioral team who very possibly could have stepped in. I understand the behavioral team, but campus police, I mean you're not really reporting anything there's not been an incident or maybe just keep an eye on him but yeah they on this instance yeah but the behavioral team they somebody should have been reported you know somebody should have gotten this report beyond the staff the behavioral team you know would have been a good start so the following is a timeline as the events unfolded but he's not a student though is he no he's not so they really can't have control over that either but but they have control over the housing right that's what I was just gonna say and they have control over the residents of the housing you know if anything they should have stepped in and said dude you know you're not to spend the night or whatever I don't know what the University of Utah is I'm just thinking of Benedicting who would just like toss the guy out on his butt (laughs) we had curfew (laughs) about a month after meeting him so on October 9th Lauren found out that Roland had, surprise, surprise, lied to her. He lied about his name. He had said his name was Sean Fields. It wasn't, obviously. It was Melvin Roland. So she knew him as Sean Fields. He was not taking classes at a community college in computer science. He was not 23. He was 37. Whoa! Why did she think he was 23? He looks really young. You'll see see the face. Oh, I was like that. There's a big difference, but he looks super young. He was very tall and very big and bulky, but his face was very um, was very young looking. He did he did not look like he was thirty seven. Wow, good for him. I want that night cream. And he also did not tell her that he was a convicted sex offender on parole. He had been in and out of prison for the last six years. Hmm, didn't they go to a shooting range with Roland's friends? And what's a felon doing with a gun? Yeah. Yeah. So all this is coming to Lauren right now. You know, she's like, wait, just a minute. We went to a shooting range. Did he tell her this? Or did he, how did she find all this out? Things just weren't adding up for her. So she got online. She found everything online. Wow. And then she confronted him with it. But uh, yeah, and... She then noticed all the scary red flags. So Lauren gathers the courage to confront Roland on October 9th. So the same day that she found all this stuff out online, she confronts him. And remember, I told you, he was a very bulky, 
like weight lift steroid <laughs> type bulky uh, tall guy okay? okay and she's just this tiny little thing it took a lot of guts I think to confront him and she breaks off the relationship but not before letting Roland stay the night what I guess he had no place to go I don't know I think she was almost too good for her own good but she let him stay the night and borrow her car in the morning to get back home or whatever. I don't know. That day was the beginning of the threats. It started with Roland's friends texting her to kill herself. Oh, geez. The following day, Jill McCuskey, so um, Lauren's mother, called the campus dispatcher asking for security to escort Lauren when she went to retrieve her car from Roland. A security escort gave her a ride to the Rice Equals, probably saying that wrong, um, stadium, and that's the University of Utah Stadium, football stadium, uh, to the parking lot where Roland had left the car. Two days later, this is October 12th, Lauren called the university police for the first time, saying that she had received suspicious messages from Roland's friends. These messages said that Roland had committed suicide and she was to blame. Mm. But then after investigating social media, Lauren had found that Roland had posted after he was supposedly to have died. Oh, and by the way, posting on social media was also in violation of his parole terms. You can't post on social media if you're on parole? Well, or that's one of his sexual offense was he was on social on media social enticing media. an under underage girl to have sex. So, yeah. Oh, man. He was a really not really good guy. How was his parole officer not tracking that he was still active on social media? I have That should no be idea. an easy I, thing I, to I track. Think, yeah, but I think parole officers are so inundated with so many people. Oh, yeah. That that's a tough, that's a tough it's field. It's not like you have five people to deal with, you know. Lauren informed Officer Miguel Deris that she did not feel like she was in danger, but felt that maybe the friends were trying to get her out of her dorm room and off campus. Mm. The next day, the university police were contacted by Lauren again. This time, she reported to Officer Deris that she had received more text. These demanded money in exchange for not posting explicit photos of her. Oh, my gosh. She had complied to the text and had sent $1,000 to an account as the text demanded. Ugh. So Officer Darius and Lawrence spoke by phone, by text, and in person the next couple of days. But Lawrence's claims were never looked into by Officer Darius or any other officer. So even though they spoke, Officer Darius or nobody else actually looked into the threat. I mean, he blackmailed her. Basically. Yeah, he did blackmail her. That that was never looked into. Had they done so, it would have been easy for them to find out that Roland was on parole and he could have been taken into custody right then and there. But for them to have done this, they would have had to know how to run such a check and no university officer had ever been trained on how to do so. Okay. <sighs> and there were no policies in place requiring them to do the check. Okay, so if you aren't already upset at this point at the university itself, this will push you over the edge. Officer Darius, at some point, 
called Lauren and asked her to send him the pictures that Roland was threatening to post. What? You know, as evidence in the case that they're not investigating, uh, right? I don't know. Okay, are you ready for this? Darius downloaded the pictures onto his personal phone. One officer stated at a state investigation into the incident that Darius had shown him at least one of the pictures. And another officer stated that Darius had bragged to him that he was able to look at the pictures whenever he wanted. It's just, I mean, I, I just got sick to my stomach. And at this point, I was fuming. I was so angry. And you can't like... I don't know if I were in her situation and it had been a few weeks going by and nothing was being done. I honestly don't know that I wouldn't have reached out to actual police. Oh, oh, just just wait. First of all, it's not a few weeks. It's just a few days. Okay, so I'm not victim blaming. I'm not at all. Eventually, because nothing was being done, Lauren and her parents contacted the Salt Lake City Police Department. Okay, yeah, good for her. But they were referred back to the campus police. What? Because this was all happening on campus and they had jurisdiction. Well, shoot, that's true. But they're not doing anything. <sighs> ah. So on October 16th, a parole agent spoke with Roland. But of course, didn't know any of Lauren's accusations because they had not been reported to him. So it was just a regular parole check-in, basically. And everything was cool. Those campus police really didn't do anything. Were they just not taking the threat seriously? Did they just... Oh, my gosh. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you even more upset. Detective Kaylee Doloff was assigned the McCluskey case. But she worked on other cases for three days from October 16th to 19th and then left on vacation. She didn't even look into the case. She could have easily connected Lauren to the university's victim advocates and the wellness center on campus, but neglected to do so. And then she did not open her emails while she was away, nor did she assign the case to any other detective. Okay, now, I understand you don't open your email when you're on vacation. I'm all for clocking out social media, everything when you're on a vacation, but not handing off a case. It's a case. It's a case. Somebody is in yeah. need of your help. You hand that off to somebody else it, while you're on your vacation. Totally blew it off. Totally blew it off. In an independent review of the university's handling of the case, it was found that the detective had been, quote, placed in a position for which she lacked the expertise to recognize subtle indicators of domestic violence. Again, the detective had not been trained for the position she was in. I guess the detective even spoke to a very frustrated Lauren on October 19th and told her that she would not be back in the office until the 23rd. Meanwhile, Lauren could just call the campus dispatch if she got another message. I, 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 I don't even. You don't know what to say. You have no idea what to say. I mean, I, I there's still police officers like I'm just I'm just sitting here like they're not trained in these things. But yeah. they're still police officers. Like, there's still terrible things that happen on campuses, big or small. Like, yeah, to me, it was like, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but to me, it was almost like they were almost like desk police officers. You know, people just took messages and stuff, but didn't hadn't been trained to follow through and investigate. I think she was like, 
pushed up in ranks really fast, and she had no clue what she was doing at all. But she had the title None. of detective. She had, yes. So that's and why she was put like, lead investigator on this. I, I just don't, you know, you and I have a very good view of just seeing right and wrong. We never attack police in general. We never attack, you know, things in general. But in this case, it's just like, what the heck? Just like the yeah. DC case where, you know, police weren't trained there and they didn't look into those children enough. And right. it, there are just some cases where you're just like, what? <laughs> I just, I know. I just don't. She has the title of detective. And, and, and it, the DC case, that was like 1970s or something, yeah. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. This is 2018. Yeah. I just. I, I, I could not, I, I just couldn't get it. So on October 19th through the 22nd, all those days, campus security video showed Roland in and around the campus, maybe looking for Lauren because he, he was spotted in all the places that she usually went. So that weekend, October 20th and 21st, Lauren actually sent three screenshots showing Roland's history and offender details to the campus police because they couldn't look into this guy. Maybe they didn't have computers. I don't know. I mean, she found she it. Actually, like, it shouldn't she, be that she hard. And she found it pretty easy. So she actually sent them screenshots of this. Wow. To help them, you know. And I understand they probably get a lot of stuff, just like any police officers. They have a lot of cases on their desk. But this one seems to be reoccurring and she's following through every day with messages and every day they could and easily look at security and footage and see that he's on the campus and he shouldn't be. He's not even a stinking student. And then exactly. let's look into this guy. Oh, he's on parole. Uh, OK, let's like it's that easy. Let's report him to the parole officer. It's that easy. This could have been easily handled on October 22nd at around 8 p.m. As Lauren walked back to the dorm from her night class, she called and spoke to her mother. For the first time in weeks, Lauren sounded happy and relaxed. She told her mother she thought she had done well on the quiz she had just taken in her health communications class and that she had a big assignment that was due, but she was on top of it. It was great to hear the old Lauren back. As the call was ending, Lauren told her mother she loved her. And then Jill heard her daughter scream, and in a panicky voice say, no, 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 no. Then nothing. Oh, gosh. It was 8.20 p.m. Unbeknownst to Jill, Roland had grabbed Lauren, who had dropped her backpack and her cell phone. Roland drug Lauren to his car, forced her into the back seat, and then he shot her multiple times. At 8.23, Lauren's father, Matt, called campus police dispatcher and asked that officers respond. At 8.32, so they did respond, police found Lauren's belongings in the parking lot. The search for Lauren began. At 9.55, Lauren's body was found in the back seat of a car. A secure-in-place alert was sent out campus-wide, and at 10.09, the alert was sent out with Roland's information, so all over, not just the campus. After it was determined that Roland had fled the campus, the secure-in-place was lifted. Finally, on October 23rd at 12.46 a.m., Salt Lake City police found Roland and followed him on foot. He went into the Trinity AME Church, and as police entered the church, Roland fatally shot himself. And I'm sorry, 
But to this, I say, good riddance. It's like, I, you know, even putting him in jail, he probably would have found some stupid loophole and gotten out. I don't know. But okay. Oh, this case, as you can tell, is so maddening. I mean, looking through it, you can see so many places where Lauren's murder could have been caught and her murder could have been prevented. On October 19th, an independent review team hired by the university released its results. University President Ruth Watkins. Okay, now I was saying words to her while I was watching (laughs) Dateline that are not to be repeated. (laughs) She said in a news statement that the report, quote, does not offer any reason to believe that McCluskey's killing could have been prevented. What? Instead, the report offers weaknesses, identifies issues, and provides us with a roadmap for strengthening security on our campus. I'm sorry, but Lauren's blood is on her hands, even in that statement. Uh, like, And she's covering her bum as well as the universities, because she is the university president, so, you know, bureaucracy, and she is covering everyone's butt with this. Oh, recommendations in the review said the department is understaffed, so the campus police department is understaffed, that it needs to hire a victim advocate, and that it needs to train all of its officers in interpersonal violence issues. Lauren's parents, of course, responded, bogus. Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. That's bull. So on February 7th, 2019, a Utah lawmaker drafted a bill calling for Utah's public colleges to a detailed response plan for cases of sexual assault, stalking, and dating and domestic violence, with an emphasis on training officers how to recognize warning signs. The bill was signed into law by Utah Governor Gary Hubert, on March 29th, 2019. On March 7th, Detective Doloff, remember her? Left. Not a detective? Yeah. Left the university's police department. It was later learned by the New York Tribune that she was fired. Hmm. Not because of a mistake she made in the McCluskey's case, but because of the same dang mistake she made in a similar case. No. A 17-year-old student reported being trapped in a male student's room, and after she was able to escape, he left her a voicemail saying he was going to kill her. Doloff left the office for the weekend without taking any action. Oh my gosh. How does she sleep at night? I, I obviously doesn't care. I don't know. She likes to put detective in front of her name. I don't know. <sighs> okay. Oh. On June 5th, 2019, the University of Utah's police department held an awards ceremony honoring a dispatcher and two administrators for how they responded to Lauren's concerns before she was killed and media questions after her death. Are you kidding me? No. Lauren's parents were extremely upset. Her father said that the ceremony borders on obscene. Later, they did get an apology from the university for including Lauren's name in the program. An award should be given if her life, she was still alive. Yeah. Now, now remember, they didn't give it to any of the officers, but they gave it to a dispatcher and two administrators. I don't even know why they even did this. 
doesn't even make any sense. I mean, the whole case was screwed up. Okay, the school still had not apologized or accepted responsibility for any neglect on their part. In fact, President Watkins didn't even respond to the McCluskey's email. So as a last resort, Lauren's parents filed a $56 million lawsuit against the university. The lawsuit stated that Lauren's death was tragic, avoidable, and untimely. Lauren, her family, and friends reached out more than 20 times with concerns, but the university did not respond, making it liable. Yep. The chief of police at the university at the time of Lauren's death, Dale Brophy, retired during the turmoil. He had been in, at the U since 2013, so when he stepped down, probably to save his own hide, he received a severance that included a year of pay at his salary of $151,000 and benefits. Oh, oh, let me add here that the U actually gave him a retirement party that cost $6,000. What? Officer Deris, who had Lauren's picture on his phone, mm -hmm. resigned from his position at the U and transferred to the Logan, Utah Police Department. His job there only lasted a year before the Logan Police Department fired him for stowing and showing the photos of Lauren. Well, he's also not a real police officer, so. <laughs> the chief stated that the abuse of evidence is quote, inconsistent with the high expectations and standards placed upon our officers by the community. So thank goodness justice in that respect. On September 21st, 2019, the university responded to the McCluskey's lawsuit. The school stated that its officers had no obligation to protect Lauren. Wait, 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 what? They had no obligation to protect Lauren because the killer wasn't a university student or employee and that he was on campus only because Lauren had invited him to her dorm. Can you say victim blaming? Are you kidding me? No. They're not doing their job of protecting their students, period. So no settlement was reached. <laughs> I'm telling you. On June 8th, the McCluskeys filed another lawsuit, this time in state court. In October, the university finally acknowledged that the murder of Lauren was preventable and that Lauren could have been better protected. <laughs> On the two-year anniversary of Lauren's death, the university agreed to pay out $13 million to her parents as part of a legal settlement. Doesn't mean crap. At the news conference, President Watkins... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep personally involved in this we don't let our personal <laughs> feelings be known in this podcast at all y'all <laughs> said that she was quote sincerely sorry Bull. and that the university's employees failed to fully understand and respond to lauren's situation it only took you her death and two years later okay and the state court saying mm -mm, no yeah so obviously you can tell I was hot when I heard and watched her say that on the Dateline episode. Because it doesn't mean crap. I mean crap. the whole time. It doesn't mean crap. I just wanted to. All this time, all the parents wanted was a dang apology. And for the university to take responsibility. And it wasn't until the U was forced to pay out that Watson was sincerely sorry. I just 
In January of that year, Watkins announced that she was stepping down. Oh, in fact, April 6th of this year was her last day. Bummer. (laughs) Yeah. So long. Farewell. She did admit in an interview with the Tribune that the McCluskey case was one part of the reason for her stepping down. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. There have been a lot of improvements done on the university campus, all for the student's safety. There are also tools in place and training is mandatory for campus police officers. But even all those things, putting all those things in place, took student, parent, and state intervention before they were. Lauren's legacy is honored by the Lauren McCluskey's Foundation, which supports charitable work in the following areas. Campus safety. It funds uh, research and education programs to keep daughters safe on campuses. The Amateur Athletics, which is financial assistance for student and youth track and field athletes, and animal welfare. Building on the success of Lauren McCluskey's Cat Wing, support for animal shelters and other programs. Mm. In Lauren's obituary, it stated that she did receive, uh, she received a posthumous BS degree in communications from the University of Utah. Also, that she is survived by her parents, her brother Ryan, grandparents, uncles, aunt, and a cousin, and her cat, Victory. Oh. Well, I don't know if, if you can tell why this thing just got me. I, this, this story just got me. It just, it, it could have been prevented. This girl could have done so much. So it wasn't only j- her death that got me riled up. It was the whole thing. It just the university's response. And I don't know. I guess that you're dealing with a state university and they have to cover themselves. I don't know. I just. So there you go. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I know you don't really like that president, but that's a hard job she was kind of thrown into. She's got to protect her school's name and she's got to protect those that are working under her. But at the same time, you also have to sit back and recognize that there was still a death and, oh, she called and so and so, so many people called 20 times. Like, let's really look into this before we make a statement that we had nothing to do with it. Like that, I don't know. Yeah, that's just that's too much for me. And I realized she had a very tough job. I mean, I give her that I could never be a president of a big university. No, but she before I I think even before anything was looked into, she said, well, it's not us. It's not us. You know, so sorry that happened. But it's not. No, no, she didn't say sorry. She didn't say sorry that happened. Oh, that's right. She didn't. (laughs) She did. No, 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 mom. No, no, no. The university never said they were sorry until the end there. Yeah. Until they were being charged to, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sad, sad, sad story that made me cry at mass for no reason. <laughs> well, some of these just, uh, yeah. Oh, that's awful. So are you going to bring us up? Uh, I don't know about that. Oh, boy. <sighs> I'm not going to bring you any further down. <laughs> I'm just going to maybe sidetrack your thoughts. Okay. I appreciate that. Sidetracked? Sidetrack. Here we go again, Beth. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Somebody messaged us and said that they love Beth's dingy comments and that (laughs) 
they see themselves in some of her dingy comments. So that would be one of those dingy comments. Okay, so I started researching this topic as a joke. I thought, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I thought it sounded silly, totally unrealistic stories about this. Uh, just, it just didn't seem realistic to me. And I thought, Haha, let's get a few laughs. <laughs> well, the joke's on me because I became absolutely hooked. And this place is thrillingly fascinating. I will be sharing with you all about the most unbelievable location. There's UFOs, shapeshifters, paranormal occurrences, and just the craziest phenomena. So crazy and so unbelievable that scientists have been studying it. Scientists. Wow. Some even funded by the United States government. Government? And they still don't have answers for us after all of these years. This location is Skinwalker Ranch. Let's start with the history of the land. The land was that of two Native American tribes, the Ute tribe and the Navajo tribe. Over time, the Utes aligned more with the United States government, which angered the Navajo tribe. But it was also discovered that the Utes were actually found selling and putting their peers and even some Navajo as slaves. Oh. There was a skirmish between the two tribes, and the Ute tribe ended up being the most successful in the skirmish, being awarded the land, and to this day, much of this land in Utah is still lived on by much of the Ute ancestors. Okay. And I believe the Navajo tribe was put on a reservation in New Mexico. Oh, okay. Do you know approximately where in Utah this is? It's in the northern, I believe it's northeast portion of Utah. Okay. But it's northern Utah. In 1860, before the Navajo tribe left, they cursed the land. They cursed the land with the Skinwalker curse. A Skinwalker is essentially a witch or a demon taking the form mostly of a giant wolf. But they have this superhuman agility and strength. In some resources, I read that they even shapeshift into other beings, not just a giant wolf. But they could actually read a mind and transform or shapeshift into whatever is most feared by whoever they're reading the no mind. No way. Of. Whoa, that's scary. Yes. So it's essentially this being that's summoned by a Navajo witch. Like I mentioned, much of the land in the area is still inhabited by those in the Ute tribe or their ancestors. And those natives refuse to come on Skinwalker Ranch. They just look the other way. The land was cursed by the Navajo tribe and they all take that very serious like fact yeah. Yeah. yeah like that happened they turn their eye to it they avoid it completely as time passed the skinwalker curse started to peer its eerie head now I know this sounds like an urban legend some hokey dokey is that word even a word hokey dokey it, yeah, it is now <laughs> but I ask you to please keep your minds open and hear me out okay so the area is called the Uintah Basin. And so in the 1900s, families living in or near this basin started reporting strange noises and odd happenings in the area. In fact, there was a newspaper article printed in the local newspaper in 1906 stating as such that weird lights were being seen out at the basin oh. and just these odd noises at night. Sights of odd creatures, orbs, and odd light beams. So like pillars of light just coming out of the basin oh my gosh. started being reported more and more. 
The land in the basin was used as a cattle ranch. It stretches 512 acres. Families of cattle ranchers came and went. In the 30s, it was the Myers family, who only added to the odd incidents being reported by locals. Throughout their time there on the ranch, basically throughout the 40s to the 60s, there were several reports of both UFO and skinwalker activity throughout the area. Eventually, in the early 1990s, the Sherman family moved in, and this is where I'll start with more in-depth stories and okay, details. so um, the Myers, the, were they Native American? No. So no, no, no. Native Americans are not going to come anywhere near this. Okay, property. so had they heard rumors of the skinwalkers? I mean, I wouldn't know a skinwalker if I saw one. So I mean, had the and even if you, but mom, even if you were told it, would you even take it seriously? No. So now, after the Myers, is the Sherman family that lives there. So I'm going to go into more details about them. Gwen and Terry Sherman and their children. As soon as they moved onto the property, odd things started happening. There were locks on every single door in the home that they moved into. And this is the home that the Myers had lived in as right. well. There were locks on cabinets, pantries, doors, windows. And the locks and the latches were on either side of the doors. So they were on the inside and they were on the outside. What? Yeah. Like I said, they were also cattle farmers. There are cattle pens throughout the property. And on this one particular day, Terry Sherman had his calves all in one pen. All of a sudden, he hears the cattle going crazy. It's in the middle of the day. He looks and there is a huge black wolf coming from the field towards the cattle pen. Oh. Where the calves are in. This wolf starts to pull a calf through the pen's rails. Yeah, warning, there is some animal stuff. If you're sensitive to that, there is some in this story. This is just the beginning. Okay, I'm going to take my headphones off and not listen to this. (laughs) And walk away. (laughs) Terry runs and gets a gun and starts to shoot at the wolf. I mean, and he's walking towards the wolf as he's shooting at this wolf. This wolf is not afraid of the shots. And some shots, as he's getting closer, he's actually hitting the wolf point blank range he sees you know hair flying you know everything this wolf is getting shot and this wolf is not affected at all okay that's after the wolf is shot six times he just turns and casually leaves the area oh this family the shermans also report balls of lights seen in the sky by the family apparitions of shadow people seen in the home and around the area in the home yeah like at the foot of their bed so they ended up starting to use those locks too because they thought well, maybe this is what's going to keep them out on every door oh they would smell these terribly bad smells just like randomly that would smell like decomp yeah and it would kind of come and go gwen sherman was unloading her groceries one day she took her groceries out of the bag set them on the counter went to put some stuff in the pantry, walked back to the kitchen, and the groceries were all put back in the bag. <laughs> so now you're having God. this paranormal poltergeist stuff as well. Oh. They found multiple crop circles. One night, the family witnessed a UFO the size of two football fields <gasps> hovering over their land. Holy smokes. That's huge. Is it? Do you know how yeah, big I a do football now. field is? faces would appear in windows and mirrors voices would be heard when no one was around 
floating lights, orbs, beams of light seen out on the property at night. And when a larger wolf was seen, Terry and his ranch workers would chase after it, following his prints. And the prints would all of a sudden just end, stop, like the wolf vanished. Oh, jeez. Didn't you say they had children? They did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so then the scariest thing to me was the cattle mutilations. Hmm. In two years that the Shermans were there, they lost 25% of their cattle oh. and found them mutilated. Like that's, it is normal for cattle to die out on ranches. I mean, you have natural predators, you sure. have, you know, issues with cattle, but in two years, 25%, that is crazy. Jeez. And what's even crazier is the way they found them mutilated. Their eyeballs were surgically cut out. Huh? The organs cut out. Blood was totally drained. And there's no blood in the area. So they would come and these cows would be totally just skin and bone, literally. All of their insides, all of their blood gone. But there's no blood on the grass surrounding it. Nothing. This is exactly like the triangle Remember in the state forest, they found all those cows that had been mutilated and their insides were out and there was n and their blood. They had no blood and there was no not even yeah. a speck of blood on the ground. Yeah. And there's just so many. I mean, there's pictures online. Uh, I was going to say we'd post them on our website, but they're kind of gruesome. No, they are very but gruesome. So, yeah. so if you want to Google it, I'll leave you to Google it. But I mean, you just have to Google Skinwalker Ranch mutilations. And there was even some stories of how like ears are cut like with like with scissors like it's not like a wolf got a hold of this and it's precise I mean it isn't ragged it's very precise word of these mutilations and odd happenings get spread and millionaire Robert Bigelow calls Terry Sherman and he says I'll buy the ranch so he buys the ranch and turns it into a paranormal research facility in 1996 Bigelow creates a research group called NIDS, National Institute for the Discovery of Science. Now, Terry Sherman was kept on to care for the cattle that were basically now being treated as bait because oh, no. they're studying all of these mutilations. So these sure. cattle are basically just being kept for bait. And NIDS even brought on more cattle. And at one time, they even brought on dogs. But... They also were studying the way that these cattle and these dogs would react if something was going to happen or if something wasn't right. So animals have that natural instinct to they sense things that we can't sense. Mm -hmm. And so they would study that all of the cattle are all of a sudden acting as if something is coming or, you know, we don't see anything. They were just studying all of these reactions to things and then and it was just be crazy because they'd be watching these cattle and maybe 20 30 minutes go by and all of a sudden they're missing a cow and it's mutilated i mean just like that within 20 minutes oh my during gosh. the day and they didn't notice anything no wow in one instance a vet on the ranch and terry gave a report to the local newspaper that a cow's eyelids had circular spots cut out of them. So the eyelids had these perfect circles cut out of the eyelids. Oh. The ears would be shredded, but like I said, not by a natural predator, almost like it was with scissors. And that's another thing. These cows would be mutilated like this throughout the year. 
So even in the cold winter months of snow, when a natural predator hunts a little less because, you know, it's colder outside, the mutilations and the deaths of these cows, they weren't stopping. Jeez. There was even this story. Terry was walking along and he had like maybe four or five bulls in a big pen. Mm -hmm. So he walks by the bulls and he's going, I don't know, he's heading to go do something. When he came back out, so maybe within like 10 minutes of it took him to go roll a hose or whatever he was going to do. When he came back out, there were no bulls in the pen. What? None. They had all been packed into a trailer, padlocked shut. When he goes to the trailer and he opens the door, the bulls are sitting in this trailer, just stuffed in there, and they're almost catatonic. They're just totally out of it. And it happened within the 10-minute span it took him to go grab something from the shed or whatever he was and doing. And there was no noise. There was no noise, nothing that would suspect him of four or five bulls getting taken from a pen into a trailer and locked up. And then the bulls are even just like totally catatonic, like not they're just kind of zombies in there, just zoned oh my out. Oh, gosh. So at this point, NIDS has the ranch property basically locked down for the integrity of their research. Uh-huh. But locals in the area, they're also seeing UFOs and these orbs of light kind of off in the distance above the ranch. It's just it's just all so crazy to me. So NIDS is out there researching until 2004. And all of Bigelow and Nid's discoveries from the last eight years were all put under lock and key. What? We have no idea what, I mean, besides these stories that were released to like the newspapers Mm -hmm. about the cattle mutilations, they were out there researching for eight years and we don't know exactly what they stumbled across. But then in 2007, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid wanted to create a government funded project to study unidentified aerial phenomena. The Pentagon backs the project, and there is $22 million in it for research. Okay. And who wins the bid for this study but Harry Reid's good friend, Robert Bigelow. Oh. And where is the study going to take place? But back at Skinwalker Ranch. How interesting. (laughs) So you have to wonder what he discovered in those eight years, and then he calls his buddy, Hey, Harry Reid, why don't you get me some funds? (laughs) (laughs) And I want to go back out there. Yeah. So now BASS is formed. Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. They're backed by the Pentagon. They're backed by NASA. And they're funded by the government. And they're back out at Skinwalker Ranch doing research. Okay. So now the government's behind it. All right. And this is all secret government stuff. Project AATIP. The Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program. So they are basically studying UFOs. That's what this program is. That's why they're out at Skinwalker Ranch is they're studying the UFOs out there. Backed by NASA, backed by the Pentagon. Let me just repeat that. That just blows my mind, really. The only statement I could find on this findings was that the UFOs seen in the area were, quote, not consistent with current military air facts. That's the only statement that was ever released to the public, was that these UFOs were basically not military aircraft. That's it, period. We don't know what else they discovered while they were out there. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe they can't identify them either. That's just... Yeah, maybe they have no explanation. I, exactly. I don't know. Bass lost funding in 2012. 
and Bigelow officially ended his research out on Skinwalker Ranch in 2016. Then, and now here comes my new obsession, (laughs) Brandon Fugel, a real estate guy, I guess to be accurate, Adamantium Real Estate, if I pronounce that right, he purchased all 512 acres of Skinwalker Ranch. He purchased it? Mm-hmm. And wow. he, too, is now researching the ranch. Oh, jeez. And all of his research is being actually documented for the public. Oh. It's a show on the History Channel, and it's called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. Season two started at the beginning of this month. I'm already hooked. I'm becoming my mother, and I'm binging it all. <laughs> <laughs> but the show is crazy because... I just told you these stories. Ooh, spooky. Ooh, wow. Like this show actually shows you these light anomalies and these light beams that are coming out of the mesa in the property. And it's just this beam of light. And it's using all of the scientific evidence. I'm becoming, Alex just teases me because it's a bunch of scientists out there. But it's showing you the light orbs. It's showing you the beams of lights. It's showing you the UFOs. It's showing you these radioactive spikes and frequencies on all of their meters. It's all being documented and researched on the show. I mean, one of the one of the guys out there researching is Dr. Travis Taylor. He's a scientist and what is that word? (laughs) Oh, he's a scientist and a physicist has over 25 years of experience in aerospace and defense industry working with NASA the Department of Defense, and the intelligence community. He has degrees in electrical engineering, aerospace engineering, astronomy, physics, and optical sciences. I mean, that's just Dr. Taylor. There are other guys out there, all just as smart as he. And like, if they see something, they do all these experiments on it to see what it is. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. Like, one of the first things they captured was this 500-foot section of the mesa being So it's like a little mountain that they can climb up on and rocks and stuff. But at night, it's being illuminated. And they've they've captured that. They've captured these crazy, weird light pillars just coming out of the mesa. They look like giant spotlights appearing out of the mesa. The show is absolutely fascinating. wow. The old homesteads, like where the Shermans lived in, Mm -hmm. they're still there. The home of the Myers, one of the first cattle ranch families out there, their homestead is still there, left abandoned from the 30s when they up and left. And actually, the area of these homesteads is where a lot of the odd occurrences are taking place. Really? But, you know, this is being documented in this day and age with our amazing technology we have. So I'm hoping that advanced technologies is going to help find some answers to some of these things. They have this system that tracks all the air traffic that flies over. So if a plane's flying over or anywhere near the ranch, mm-hmm. they can track it and they can say whose plane it is, what's the flight number, when it's where you know where it's coming from, where it's going. So this also tracks private planes and like who owns it, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. So when they spot these UFOs and they aren't coming up on their system, you know, and they're tracking these anomalies, and, and there's many UFOs seen in these sh- in this show. So you, I mean, you saw a UFO in the show? Multiple times. Multiple UFOs. Not just one. Multiple. Really? They've created this new technology, Satan. I don't know if I like the name, but it stands for Sentinel Assignment Telemetry and Notification. 
I don't know. I know what notification means. <laughs> it's a device that measures vibrations in the ground and records sound below the frequency range that a human can hear. And it's constantly being measured. There are cameras covering all points of the ranch in every single direction. So everything is being recorded constantly. They're out there with these tri-field meters, electric field measurement devices. They measure magnetic, the magnetic field, static electric field, and it measures radio frequencies and microwaves, which is an electromagnetic dynamic field. I know I sound so smart. <laughs> but what's crazy is that these show spikes in certain areas close to dangerous levels, but then the spikes like come and go. And the direction even changes. So they were on this area in the Mesa, right above one of the homesteads. I believe it's homestead too. But they're on the Mesa. They're in these rock-like areas. And they bring out these specialists for certain things. There's this area in the Mesa that looks like a cave. And as they're kind of climbing into it, they're also checking to make sure like the oxygen levels are good right electromagnetic yeah. isn't too high like all of these like the microwave levels aren't too high like all of these levels are okay for them to be in there mm-hmm. so they're tracking this and everything is totally fine at first it's really high and then it goes away so everything's fine and it feels like basically this ace like an ac unit is blowing at them all this cold air is just rushing at them and that dr taylor i mentioned before he's climbing in he has like i said he has an oxygen monitor on and he's climbing in and all of a sudden he's like does anybody else feel really woozy like like he just felt like he was about to pass out but all the levels were reading totally fine oxygen everything and then he even notices that he was using his cell phone as a flashlight Mm -hmm. and his cell phone just died and he's like oh well my flashlight just died my cell phone just died he's like i need to get out of here and one of the other guys was like, yeah, mine died as soon as I got in here. Oh, my gosh. So you're just having some of this electric pull and nobody can explain any of it. I mean, because there's paranormal experiences, poltergeist activity. And then there's the UFOs and all these like unexplained mutilations. And it's all happening on this 512 acres of ranch out in Utah, like out in the middle of nowhere. It's like it's it's crazy to me Jeez. and I know it sounds so unbelievable but I and I am definitely not like a science nerd by any means but but I just found it so fascinating that like Dr. Taylor leads this research project where they're trying to decipher which direction these radio waves or he calls microwaves are coming from and they use these like tin cans and underneath the meters so that they can find the direction of where they're coming from so they go to all these they go to three different places on the acreage mm-hmm. with these meters and get the readings and they can tilt it and figure out what direction is coming from so then they measure the angle and like i don't know the way they do it and explain it i could understand so if you watch it you'll be able to understand too because Science was definitely not a strong point for me. Again, I'm a history nerd through and through, but this was just fascinating. So then they go back to a map and they pinpoint where they were in the acreage. And then they make the angle of where the beam of electromagnetic energy was coming from. And they take a string and they take it. And their objective is to find where the three strings cross 
Oh. So they can see where the source is that's creating these rays of microwave energy is what they call it. Okay. They do this and it comes to a point up in the sky. Mm -hmm. And so then they even, they measure the distance and everything. And it would be about a mile in the air. That's where it's, this energy is coming from a mile in the sky. Now we can see a mile in the sky. And that's much lower than what a jet or a plane or anything like that uh-huh, would fly. Uh-huh. And you got to think, too, up there, you don't have Wi-Fi. So this and it's stronger than like a Wi-Fi or anything like that up there. So was there anything up there when they did that? I mean, could they see anything? So they actually sent... No, they can't see anything. And so they actually send up some weather balloons to, mm-hmm. with meters on them. And one of them, they have like a string on it. This was just one of the experiments. There's so many on there. But they have a string on the weather balloon that goes up. It's like a rope that it goes up and the meters start to test. And the balloon and it's too windy. And so that one fails. So then they decide to send up a weather balloon with all the meters and everything attached to it that they can track back at their station where they have all their tracking stuff without a rope tied to it. So they let the weather balloon go and they're tracking it, tracking it, tracking it. And just over 5,000 feet up, which is a mile, everything disappears off the radar. The weather balloon disappears off the radar. All their tracking meters, everything they were tracking, just poof, gone. No. Ironically, a mile in the air. Just poof, gone? I mean, they're Mm -hmm. literally gone. Gone. They can't track it anymore. physically, wow. They have no idea where it went. They're tracking it on their computers and their all their analytics and all this crap. I don't understand, but it looks cool. <laughs> it's gone. That's crazy. So they've moved caretakers out there and they've moved cattle out there and they're doing all this research. The show is absolutely fascinating and the area is absolutely fascinating. Even if you aren't a science nerd, it's just it's baffling to me. Because the story is unbelievable, but then when you have scientists out there doing research to try to prove it all, I mean, and there's there's so much more that they found. I could chat all night on this episode, <laughs> but the episode needs to come to a close sometime. So let's leave some more discussion and theories and <coughs> Ghost Adventures has been in the area, not on the ranch, yes. but they've they were out at Skinwalker Canyon, which is in new mexico and so it's pretty far away from the ranch like total it's very far but it has the same theories of the skinwalkers but we're going to chat about all that on our patreon episode yes ma'am special episode only for our patrons because there's so much more uh research and evidence that they found on ufos and more that i really want to share with you guys so just hop on over there to patreon Can you repeat the name of that History Channel show? The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. Okay. It's on the History Channel. It's, uh, I found it on Hulu. Uh, I also found it on Discovery Plus, but it is from the History Channel. Okay. Season one came out in 2020. So I'm one, I bet you could find it on the History Channel like website. But season two started, I believe, it began in the beginning of this month. Okay. Very It's cool. so fascinating. But we're going to chat all about it on Patreon. Yes, with a little bit more. <laughs> with a little bit more. Okay. So, yeah. Fascinating. That is... Fascinating. 
See, I told you I would distract you a little bit from your story. You distracted me greatly from my story because that makes you wonder what's out there. No, it does. And I think it almost validates it because these scientists and stuff are out there doing this. Yeah, and that's what Brandon said, the guy who owns it now. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he's been a very strong, he's very, very religious man. And he's always been curious about like what else is out there and like what makes the world tick. And that's kind of why he bought the property to just see, you know, what is all this hullabaloo? Like Mm -hmm. what's making this world tick out here? And he, when he first bought the property, he went out and did a lot of investigations himself and just the old homesteads and meter readings and just, you know, he's not a scientist by any means, but he was just fascinated by the orbs and the UFOs and the sightings and all the different weird activity that was happening out there. You know, and there's a lot of theories of why these things are happening out there. We're going to talk about on Patreon. I don't want to take away from our patrons, but it's just really, he, he he's just so fascinated in his own little year of going out there on the weekends to look into his property that he was like, I got to get researchers out here. I got to get real researchers out here. Wow. So, yeah. Thank you. That was fascinating. All righty. Well, next week we will be covering the state of California. Yes, ma'am. You have the true crime. I have another case that will probably upset a few people, but just saying. Uh, okay. <laughs> be prepared. Okay. Sorry. We just watched The Lion King. <laughs> Again, we're still virtual. We're going to get together here soon and record an episode. Yes. Okay. So another virtual cheer. Oh, all of the resources for this episode are going to be on our website. And if you want to listen to the Patreon episode, which you're going to want to listen to the Patreon episode, (laughs) (laughs) you can find a link to our Patreon on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. It's $5 a month. You get extra episodes, episodes released early. The $5, guys, as you notice, we don't have advertisements in our podcast. So we're really sponsored. All of our research, cocktails, sources. I mean, we send goodies out to our patrons. All of that is really just brought to you by our patrons. So thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you. And our listeners. And our listeners. But if you join Patreon by the 1st of June, you are going to be getting a little goodie in the mail. So not only are you going to be hearing about more skinwalkers and mom gets to go on and on about Zach Bagans. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Extra episodes and all that jazz. You also get a little goodie. So again, that's on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. You can listen to episodes there. All of our resources and pictures are going to be there. Just not pictures of the mutilations. You can Google that on your own. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. So thank you guys so much for listening and virtual cheers. Cheers, mama. Cheers. I love you, kid.